6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Acts of the Apostles. Well, we are in hour 17 of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and we're going to focus this session on the book of Acts. And I'll call it, with my tongue in my cheek a little bit, Luke Volume 2. Luke wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which follows naturally in many ways from his gospel. The New Testament, of course, has five historical books opening the New Testament. The Old Testament had five books of Moses, which opened its structure. And the New Testament has five uh, narrative books, the four Gospels and the book of Acts. And again, I say the book of Acts really serves as Luke volume 2, in a sense. And that's followed by epistles, which are the interpretive uh, sessions, and we'll get to those, of course, later, and climaxing with the book of Revelation, which wraps up the whole Bible in a comprehensive way. But the book of Acts is our uh, focus tonight. Sometimes in some of your Bibles called the, the Acts of the Apostles. Well, if that was true, it's a little puzzling because you've, uh, you've only, you got primarily Peter and Paul in the, the first half of the book, of major section of the book being Peter and the second section being Paul. But it could be more properly titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because there's much more going on than just Peter and Paul with Philip and some other things. You may recall as we looked at the design of the four Gospels, we recognized that each of the four main writers had a specific theme, a specific focus, a specific approach. Matthew presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel, a very Jewish perspective, starting his genealogy with Abraham and going right on through, finishing with the resurrection, which is a very, again, a very Jewish focus of attention. Mark, who is really Peter's secretary, wrote for, for emphasizing his servanthood. He focused on what Jesus, not what he said, but what he did. It's almost like a shooting script, if you study it carefully. But it finishes with uh, the ascension. Luke, being a doctor, focuses on Christ's humanity, the Son of Man. His genealogy starts with Adam and goes right on through, through Mary. We covered all of that. He closes his gospel with the promise of the Holy Spirit, how that when Jesus would leave, the Comforter would come. And as you realize, what that really does, it deliberately sets up the book of Acts. John, as the fourth gospel, focuses not on what Jesus said or what he did or what he felt, but who he was. And he finishes his gospel with the promise of Christ's return, which is interesting because he sets up his sequel, the book of Revelation, of the return of Christ. So, so again, John focuses on who Jesus was. Uh, Luke 
on the Holy Spirit, which of course sets up the book of Acts. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So this is a pre-announcement, anticipative announcement in the upper room. He continues a a couple chapters later, he also amplifies his mission. Jesus says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So here again, Jesus is doing several things. He's announcing the primary mission of the Holy Spirit. Don't be confused by this. The Holy Spirit's very active all through the Scripture. The first quotes of God involve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God moved or brooded above the waters in Genesis, in the first chapter, the second verse of the first chapter. So the Holy Spirit's very active, but He is He comes in a very special way to accomplish these things. He will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself. You know, it's fascinating to notice throughout the Bible, whenever there's a type or a model like Abraham being the father, and Isaac being the son, the son being offered, and so forth. It's always interesting that the Holy Spirit is always in the role of an unnamed servant. In Genesis 24, where Abraham commissions his, uh, his uh, business partner to go and get a bride for Isaac. Again, we have Abraham in the role of the father. We have this guy, unnamed there, but if, if you go uh, several chapters earlier, you'll find out his name is Eliezer, which means comforter. But it's interesting, he's always an unnamed servant. In the book of Ruth, when uh, uh, Ruth is introduced to Boaz, Ruth is uh, the gen- going to be the Gentile bride of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who introduces Ruth to Boaz, an unnamed servant. It's fascinating to notice the Holy Spirit, when he's in a typological model of some kind, it's always an unnamed servant. Why? Because of John 16, 13. He shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. That's also a pre-endorsement of the New Testament, which will come out of all of this. It's interesting how... In John 16, Jesus emphasizes the apparent mutually exclusiveness in some sense. For this next phase, Jesus is announcing, of course, in the upper room, John 14 through 16 being that, in fact, through 17 of the upper room discourse. He says, it is expedient for you, speaking to his disciples, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send them unto you. Now, we can't pretend to really understand the dynamics here, except it's clear that there's some kind of exchange going on. Jesus would leave in order to make it possible for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell among us. So there's a concept here of locality. When Jesus was on the earth in his ministry, he had locality. You could touch and feel him. He was in a a specific location geophysically. Uh, It's interesting that by His going away and the Holy Spirit coming, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at one time, among all of us, not in just one one place. So it's interesting to see the, the differences there. So the acts of the Holy Spirit, 
will involve a number of things. We've got um, the Ascension. We'll see Pentecost, which as we would call it, or the Feast of Shavuot, the birth of the church, major feature. The outrage against Stephen will occur. Philip and the Ethiopian treasure, we'll talk about that because most people don't know the background there. Uh, the call of Saul, if you will, or Paul. And uh, we've got 28 thrilling chapters here that are going to include all these. Peter's vision uh, at Cornelius, he, he, he uh, is introduced, here's a Jewish apostle, introduced to the Gentile world by a centurion, or a vision through the centurion, which of course opens the mission to the Gentiles. And then this very interesting council in Jerusalem. This whole book, it's a shame we have to survey it so superficially, because it's full of intrigues, violent mobs, blood oath alliances, people, group of 40 guys swearing to the death to kill Paul. These guys were, took what they were doing very seriously on both sides. All kinds of corrupt officials and so forth, jailbreaks, shipwrecks, magicians, sorcerers, um, raising from the dead, all, all these things are going on in a very uh, interesting book, a very dynamic, uh, uh, dramatic book. But it's also a very key book. It's the bridge, if you will, from the history to the interpretive epistles. It's the gateway to the epistles. And it also uh, highlights the major turning point of world history. We'll have the first missionary journey that Paul takes on to Galatia. The second missionary journey, which will go to Greece and start to open up Europe. Then the uh, third missionary journey, where he reviews all of that. And we'll find out these outcries against this incredible human being that we call Paul. Before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, uh, officials, before the governor Felix, before Festus, before King Agrippa, and ultimately appealing to the, wor the leader of the world, Caesar himself. And so Acts will conclude about that time, and when he goes to Rome. And we'll talk some of the interesting things about the shipwreck. That was not the only shipwreck, by the way. It's probably the fourth shipwreck that he had, but he was, he was probably bad news for a ship captain. If Paul's aboard, you know, oh, anyway, uh, kidding. Um, Acts chapter 1 really deals with the departure of Jesus Christ. It de deals with the ascension. The Gospels take you up to this, but this, is, this really records the post-resurrection instructions and where they are instructed to await the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Of course, records the ascension from Mount of Olives, where a cloud comes down and receives him. And there's two angels. It's interesting how these angels always seem to be in pairs. There's a pair of angels that destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a pair of angels uh, appear uh, uh, at the ascension and so forth. Two angels confirm that he will return just like he left. In like manner is the phrase in your English Bible. This is also described in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. There's a great deal of visibility. In fact, there's seven times as many verses about the second coming of Jesus Christ as there are with the first. Uh, it's a very, very major part of Scripture. But now they have, of course, 11 in the key group, the inside group, are uh, 11, because uh, Judas is history. <laughs> and uh, there are about 120 present at the meeting. But the inside 11 decide to cast lots to elect a replacement for Judas. And the lots are cast, and a guy by the name of Matthias is selected. 
And this leads to uh, some disputes among scholars. There are many that believe that that was probably a mistake. It was a self-appointed task they took on for themselves. Uh, many feel that the, le the twelfth apostle would be Paul. Paul would be the natural replacement. There are many Bible teachers that emphasize that, and they may be correct. However, there are other scholars which point out that the apostles were Jewish and primarily ministered to Israel. That Paul's distinctive role was to be called as the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. The door to the Gentiles will be opened by Peter, an incident with Peter in chapter 10, but the clear mandate for uh, uh, the Gentile world was Paul. So whether the twelve really were, you know, there, there's a lot of debate as to just, you know, was Matthias really the legitimate uh, choice or not, and, and not a big deal, but you'll find different, different scholars have slightly different views. But one of the key verses in the first chapter of the book of Acts is uh, the ma marching orders, where, God, where Jesus says to them, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, which of course will occur in the following chapter, in chapter 2. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now what's interesting about this is there's a, there's a sequence here, Jerusalem being the local scene that they're at right now, then all Judea, visualize that as a, a larger ring, all Judea, then extending that even further also is Samaria, which is sort of the half-Jewish area. Samaritans being looked at as only ethnically impure in that sense. And then, of course, fourthly, the uttermost parts of the earth. There are many ministries that look at this as their growth charter. First, you, bl you bloom where you're planted, where you start. Then as you grow, you take the next neighborhood. Then you grow, and, and finally, to all, all the earth. But clearly, in Acts chapter 2, we have the big event. The Holy Spirit descends in a very visible way at the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. It's a very overlooked feast. Of the seven feasts of Moses, there were three that were required attendance of every able-bodied Jew in Jerusalem, if he could do it. The Passover, actually it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but generically the Passover season is one of them. The Feast of Tabernacles at the end, and there's a strange one in between, the Feast of Shavuot. And it's the only one that has leavened bread involved. It's obviously a uh, predictive feast of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's fulfilled on that very day. As they meet, the Holy Spirit visibly descends like flames of fire. Uh, everybody, the, all the people there from all over the world, hears them speak in their own tongues. The, they're really quite disturbed. Something very supernatural is going on. And Peter explains it by quoting from Joel chapter 2. It's the birth of the church. This is where the mystical church begins. This is one of the distinctions you need to emphasize in your own Bible studies to recognize that not all people that are saved are necessarily in the same category. There are people saved all through the Old Testament, obviously, and there are also people that are saved during the period we live in today. But th th there are some very important distinctives 
between those two, and there's going to be again a third group in effect, those that are saved after the church is gathered. You need to understand as you study ecclesiology, the study of this peculiar mystical thing we call glibly the church. And we're obviously not talking about the physical edifices of churches. We're talking about this very privileged assembly that you and I are part of if we're in Christ. We enjoy privileges and blessings that are unique to us that were not available to the people in the Old Testament. Very distinct. And that's what Paul tries to get across in his epistles. We often don't understand his answers because we don't understand the questions he's dealing with. And so be sensitive to that in any case. Israel and the church are not the same thing. They're both distinctive. They have different origins, different missions, different destinies. Need to understand that. Check it out. Well, we won't go through each of the chapters, the 20 chapters in Acts, but chapter 7 of Acts is an incredibly interesting, instructive chapter. It's basically this young kid, Stephen, is before the Sanhedrin, the most august body in Judaism. This kid gives these elders a history lesson. In this speech, he reviews the history of Israel. This is interesting for several reasons. Let me give you two. One is, he mentions things in his speech. He makes comments, in effect, about the Old Testament that you will not find in the Old Testament. There are insights here that are unique to this chapter. That he, un- he unravels a few riddles for us by his perspective. The other reason it's interesting is to figure out where he's headed. They do not let him finish his speech. Before he's finished, they take him out and stone him to death. It's interesting to study his speech, outline it for yourself on a piece of paper sometime, and see where he was headed. And I'll give you a few clues. First of all, there's a place where he talks about the Pharaoh that, uh, of the Exodus. He mentions how Joseph is down there and in and, 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 and charge and all that. But then another Pharaoh that knew not Joseph rises. Now in the English, when we say another, we just mean another. In the Greek, they have two different words. If I want one of you to give me another pencil exactly like the one I have. I just broke it. I want another one like the one I've got. You see, I would use the word alos for another. If I really want a different kind of pencil, I've got a red one, I want a blue one or something, then I would use the word heteros, a different kind. It's like saying another of a different kind. The first one is another of the same kind. What's provocative in the Greek of Stephen's discussion of Pharaoh, he uses the word heteros, which means the Pharaoh that succeeded the Pharaoh that was favorable to Joseph was a totally different kind of guy. That puts us on the alert when you get to, it turns out that the Pharaoh that uh, of the Exodus was not Egyptian. He was an Assyrian. You will not find this, I don't believe, in any study of Egyptology, because they all presume, they make presumptions there are some schol- the recent scholars that are, have just shredded the traditional chronology of, 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 of the Egyptian pharaohs. You discover, if you get into this, start studying it, all the you know, 25th dynasty or whatever, these are scholastic labels. They were not necessarily clear from the, the dynasties of the time. They're, they're, they're retrospective scholastic categories. 
And there are some studies now that have show that if you put, if you analyze what we think we know about the pharaohs carefully, they do fit astonishingly with the Bible. And one of the embarrassing things, if you've done biblical studies in the past, the Egyptian lineup chronologies and the biblical chronologies don't seem to mesh at all. Well, that's because of poor scholarship of the past. Some, there's some very radical studies that are, are kicking that handheld, if you will. But Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, tells us that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Assyrian. Pharaoh was a title. He wasn't always Egyptian. A very important Pharaoh we're going to talk about when we get to Acts chapter 8. Is, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get into that there. But we also discover in the first few verses of, of Stephen's talk, we discover that Abraham didn't obey God the first time. God had said to Abraham, get you out of the, or the Chaldees. And so if you read Genesis carefully, the allusion there is something God had said earlier. He's supposed to leave his family. He didn't. He just moved up a river. And that uh, is another fascinating aspect to Abraham's life that emerges out of Stephen's summary here. But something else, a larger overview, what Stephen's really highlighting as you study his talk is that Israel's history has always been a pattern of failures. Abraham didn't obey God initially. He finally, when his father dies, then he does obey. He had been told to leave. He, 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 it was a second time, so to speak, that he does it right. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Um, again, it's, there's a double identity time there right before he's exalted. Moses uh, was rejected by Israel at first when he killed the Egyptian. It was the second time that they accepted his leadership. The law, the first Ten Commandments were destroyed. God had to make a second set of them. And you'll always, all through their history, when they get to Kadesh Barnea, they don't accept the challenge to go forward, so they're condemned, so to speak, into uh, spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's the second time that they finally go through under Joshua and so forth. His pattern is that they always blow it the first time they make it on the second. And this builds right up to the point he's talking about, your Messiah came and you've crucified him. What's his point? He's coming back. See, there's a second. Again, it's, it follows the pattern. that they'll, The second time he comes, they'll accept him and uh, so forth. So you can go through that on your own studies. There are some interesting parallels. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, uh, Jerusalem is at the center Peter is the chief figure in the first 12 chapters. It reaches as far as out, the, the outreach of the gospel goes out as far as Samaria. The word is rejected by the Jews of the homeland in Israel. Peter is imprisoned. There's a judgment on Herod. In, con, in chapter 13 and following, you'll, know, you'll discover that the center of the action is no longer Jerusalem, it's Antioch is at the center of the, of the Gentile outreach. Peter's no longer the chief figure. We don't hear much about him after that, occasionally. Paul is the chief player in the, in the last half of the book. The reach outreach here goes all the way to Rome. And the word is rejected now by the Jews of the dispersion. Paul is imprisoned, not Peter, and the judgment on the Jews. So, interesting parallels. Another parallel is between Peter and Paul in the first half 
of the book, Peter is the key figure. His first sermon, the lame man being healed, Simon the sorcerer, the influence of a shadow and laying on of hands resulting in miracles. They even try to worship him in chapter 10. Tabitha is raised from the dead in chapter 9. He's imprisoned in chapter 12. Paul is the key player in the rest of the book, virtually the last half. First sermon in chapter 13. Again, a lame man is healed. There's a sorcerer prominent in chapter 13. Again, we have the influence of a handkerchief or laying on of hands in chapter 19, equivalent to the previous ones. Paul, they try to worship in chapter 14. Eutychus is raised from the dead, having fallen out of a th third-story window. And uh, Paul is in, finally imprisoned in in, at the end. So there's an interesting parallelism between these two careers. But let's take a look at it. Uh, let's take another look at it uh, geographically. Let's talk about Philip. Um, he's one of the, after the stoning of Stephen, the believers in Jerusalem were scattered. And uh, Philip was one of the seven helpers, or deacons, if you will, of the early church. And he goes to Samaria, and many people are healed uh, in Samaria. And uh, it's up north. It's a, a marginal country from a Jewish perspective. And uh, it's up there that Simon the uh, magician comes to faith. Down in Jerusalem, there are several, namely Peter and John, are surprised that the Samaritans are accepting Jesus. They're excited about that. They go up to check it out. And they do find that the Samaritans are very enthusiastically accepting Christ. But they also recognize this guy Simon, who was a magician, uh, apparently of some repute at the time, who became a believer. They had to admonish him because he, uh, he offered them money for the Holy Spirit. He saw they had something he wanted money, so he, he offered them money. So we have the first occasion of um, TV evangelists where they do it for the money. I'm being facetious here a little bit, a little cynical perhaps. But anyway, Peter and John do investigate, and, get, and they get good news, although they did, they did admonish Simon. But now, right in the middle of this revival, so to speak, Philip is sent by God down to the Jerusalem to Gaza road. There's a road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And Philip is pulled out of this revival and sent down there to meet, of all people, an Ethiopian treasurer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.